Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here, and I wanted to ask you a quick favor. If you like the show and it has helped you, please remember to rate, review, and follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Also, consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. And now, let's get to the creative chat. Do you have big dreams but feel others are limiting who you are and what you do? Maybe you've wanted to spread your wings in some area of your career, but you've already seen some pushback or judgment from people in your life. If you're a longtime listener, you know a huge part of the show is about detaching your identity from what you do. But as I'm sure you know, if you do anything long enough, other people love to put you in that little box and keep you there. Today, you'll learn some tactics to get out of that box overcome the judgment, and do what is authentic to your deepest and highest self. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, and spirituality. Today's guest is someone who will inspire you to tap into that spirituality, dream bigger, and let your higher self guide you. Elvin Garrett is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, musical artist, producer, bassist, and sound engineer. He also teaches songwriting with a charity called The Danim Project, which is a re-entry program for at-risk populations. Although he doesn't like to label his music in any particular genre, the best I can say is you can hear his soul when he sings and plays. I wanted to have Elvin on the show because he had the foresight and the bravery to let his career and identity along with his career evolve. From being a bassist to an arranger to a songwriter, the pressure for him to stay in his lane has never stopped. Despite that, though, he has continuously evolved and reinvented himself. Today, he shares tools on how you can do the same. Even more than that, Elvin's mission is to spread love and light through his life and music. He wants to affect change through love, which is something I call social justice, S-O-U-L-C-I-A-L justice. He does just that. He's a wonderful soul, and I can't wait for you to hear from him. Now, here he is, Elvin Garrett. Elvin, thank you so much for being on Unleash Your Inner Creative. I'm honored to have you here. Honored to be here. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Well, I was telling you right before we got on air, I was listening to a lot of interviews you did. And there was this one where you talked about how you didn't know you were a songwriter till later in life. I really resonated with that because I'm also a songwriter. I also didn't know till later in life. And you said this thing that just struck me. You're like, I was always making up silly songs. I was singing to the fridge. And I did the same thing when I was a kid. I would like sing all my thoughts and feelings. I would like make these weird songs up. And my parents never were like, oh, look, Lauren's a songwriter. It was just like, oh, she's being weird again. <laughs> you know, it was encouraged for me to be silly. But I don't know. I'm just I'm curious how that strikes you when you look back on it. Like, do you think anything would have changed for you had you realized that that's what you were doing at that point? Or do you think that was like a necessary part of the creative process of you just playing? I honestly don't know. I've never thought about that. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. you know, it's kind of cool to discover some meaning 
you know, as you get older to discover the meaning of what was happening when you were young, you know, and so now I'm observing my seven-year-old mm. and she literally does the same thing. <laughs> you know, if she's, you know, wants candy, she wants some candy or <laughs> a couple of nights I've, you know, stood down in, in the, on the second level of my house and heard her singing in the shower. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is an original song. And I ask her when she gets out, I say, like, what was that? I don't know. I was just singing. And it reminds me of me. And I'm looking at her like, I'm not going to tell her to be a songwriter because she wouldn't understand it right now. Right. She's just letting what's in her come out. And so I think about myself, it was the same thing. Yeah. And when did you realize songwriting was a thing? I I think around 2000. And and I'll tell you a story. I was uh, working with a gentleman named uh, PJ Morton. You know, he's a keyboard player for Maroon 5, but back in that time we were in a band together and I played bass in the band and I just I was like man he's such a great songwriter such a great songwriter and so he sort of inspired me to like kind of take it serious um, because I was working with somebody who's who I felt was a great songwriter and it inspired me to like really take it serious but then I discovered that I also was a great songwriter (laughs) I just never uh, since I was so into being a bass player and I defined myself as a bass player I just never took the time to sit down and write songs. And so by being around him, it helped me tap into something that I already was. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like you were always a songwriter. It's just you weren't included on that yet. Right. What did it feel like when you first started owning that title? Was there any sort of imposter syndrome? Were you tentative about it? How did you really fully step into the role of songwriter and claim that for yourself? Wow. It actually took several years after just starting to mess around with it because I embraced the producer role first, right? I I began to define myself as a producer because I saw myself as a musician, you know, doing musical arrangements. I was a musical director with my band, toured. So I really defined myself more as a music producer with songwriting being sort of the uh, secondary thing. But around 2011, 2012, I really started growing into expressing myself and wanting to get placement with other artists. And so I found that I was just writing, writing, writing from a placement perspective. Mm. And and it was easier to get collaborations as a writer, as opposed to a producer, you know, and I was like, wait a minute. Interesting. Yeah. Nobody's intimidated by a writer because every producer and, and arranger needs a writer to complete a song. And so I started putting down the producer role and picking up the songwriter role because I could get more collaborations easier. So honestly, it was really a networking tool for me to stop saying I'm a producer and I'm a vocal arranger and a songwriter. And then I started getting placements and Grammy nomination. All of that stuff happened because I embraced the title of being a songwriter, but I still approached all my creation as a producer, Mm. you know, meaning that. I'm not just seeing the lyrics and the melody of a song. I'm seeing the entire song and knowing my role in helping to make that body of work come to life. Yeah. And I want to come back to this before we do, though, a big part of the show is helping people make shifts in their lives. And you've done that so many times. But I think probably one of the most major shifts you made was when you jumped out of corporate America to pursue being a musician full time. Yes. So can we talk about that? What was that journey like? How did you get to the point where you felt you had enough courage to do it? And what would be your advice for other people who are trying to make a leap to something creative in their own lives? Well, 
the the leap for me started as a slow jog towards the edge, right? <laughs> um, you know, when I went to college and as a musician, and I and I'm telling you, I'm a bad boy on the bass. Bad boy on the bass. <laughs> I'm a bad boy on that bass, <laughs> but I didn't want to study music because I felt like I said, how much better can I be on the bass? Mm if I want to make a living, right? If I want to do this as a business. So I studied business. I chose to get a business management degree because I said, I want to be in the business of music, right? And I felt like I would hit a plateau at some point to where my skill as a musician, it would get me only so far. right? And so even though I, I, I went into corporate America, I went in waiting on the day to come out. <laughs> so, so I had a plan. I had a business I was using my check outside of my, you know, living expenses to invest in equipment, studio equipment. You know, I was preparing myself for the day of that collision between my job and my dream. And it came two years after working in corporate America, uh, where I ran out of vacation time, you know, in the summer of 2002. And I was prepared. You know, I had been working part time. You know, I wasn't hanging out, just kicking it after work. I was in the lab. You know what I mean? I was you know, on the weekends with my band, we were rehearsing. So I, I planned and it was a slow progression, but it was strategic planned progression. So it, it wasn't just this, whoa, I'm jumping out here, just going to discover what's happening. It was, I got a plan. It's risky, it's scary, but I'm prepared. And so when I made that leap, I didn't have to spend a little bit of money that was coming in through my gigs. I didn't have to spend it hiring a sound man. I already own my sound. I'd already learned how to use it. Every event that I put on, I was saving money because I didn't have to outsource all of those different things that I had invested in while I was working. So I would encourage people, you know, don't just take that leap for the nostalgia of it. Have a plan, you know, learn the business and the industry that you're going to get into. Because a lot of people jump into this thing knowing nothing about <laughs> how to make money, how to survive, how to pay bills, how to generate revenue. They don't know anything about the industry itself. I mean, I would never advise anybody just for the art of it to just jump out there um, blind and ignorant about this business. Yeah, no, that's not a, it's not a smart move. I mean, it sounds pretty sexy, but it's not sexy in action. <laughs> it's just scary. <laughs> Cause, because you, you have to do something with those 40 hours, right? So what are you going to do? Right? Yeah. Can't be sitting around twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to strike down lightning. Yeah. exactly. How long did it take you to put together the plan? Was it that full two years? Well, I started like in college, actually, you know, I was working on my business plan while I was in college, you know, and started promoting my own events here in Birmingham, Alabama, where I lived, you know, put my band together and promoted my own shows. And this was before social media, you know, before the rise of all of the digital marketing, you know, I was doing emails and, you know, driving around, passing out tickets and flyers, old school style, <laughs> you know, I'm telling my age, <laughs> but I was active in my dream before I took the next step in the phase of my dream. So it wasn't, like I said, I took a slow jog towards the edge. By the time I got there, I had a few wings and I could fly, you know? Um, and, and so it was scary. Like I said, I won't ever say that it wasn't scary because when I didn't have the comfort of my job, I knew that it was only myself that I was depending on. Like I had to get up and work every day at my dream. Like I put the same amount of time and even more into my dream. And I was prepared to do that. And it has worked out for me. 
I'll say. So let's go back to you in the like late 2010s, right? You said like 2010, 2011, you started really stepping into the role of songwriter. And often when we take on a new role, maybe it's not even ourselves that like gets imposter syndrome. It's like when we talk to someone else, they're like, oh, you do that. I didn't know you do that. Now it doesn't sound like you came up against that much, but like, has there been any time? Cause you've got so many different hats you wear where people are like, oh, I didn't know you did that and kind of like judged it. And if so, how did you deal with that? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, in every transition I've, I've made in my career, been given that, that whole, wait, wait a minute, why are you doing that? Like, why, why are you writing songs? You're a great bass player. And then when I became a great songwriter and people started knowing me as that, they're like, well, wait a minute, why you want to be an artist? Like, just write songs. <laughs> so every single transformation I've made, I've run into that and I've always had a plan for it, even down to, I had a nickname called, people called me Cornbread as a bass player. They said Cornbread. And I used to define, introduce myself. Hey, I'm Cornbread. I play bass for boom. Wait, can I just ask why? How, how come Cornbread? I mean, it's a delicious food. It was just a nickname that caught on because of the big guns and everything. It's got it, got it, got it. Country boy thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love cornbread. Oh, do you? Yeah. Not yeah. mad at it. <laughs> but I realized when I decided to become an artist, that cornbread and that brand say a base. Mm. So I took it out of all my bios. I, I basically erased it from all my social media I've never said it. I, and I reintroduced myself. Uh, I don't go by cornbread anymore. I go by my, my name. It took years. And I had to stop people every time they called me cornbread because when they did it, they were calling me a bass player. I'm not, I'm not a bass player. I play bass. I'm an artist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I had to own it and make other people own it. Right. And so one of the biggest challenges I faced was with people close to me who depended on my greatness as something else. Oh, wow. Like, dude. Wait, will you say that again? <laughs> My biggest opposition came from people close to me who depended on me being something else. So for instance, I was the best musical director. You know, man, you put together the shows, you, you sing background, you program, you play the instrument, you keep the band in line. Why do you want to be an artist? Hmm. Now I lose five or six different roles that you play. So stay where you are because it makes my life easier, right? I need you to be that, to fit into my puzzle, right? And to fit into my construct. And so I had to blow up a lot of people around me saying, no, I decide who I'm going to be. If that makes you uncomfortable, if that makes it harder for you, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to replace five to 10 different people because I go that hard. Right. <laughs> and, and so that was one of the biggest challenges is seeing how difficult it was for people around me to watch me evolve. Even singers that I developed were not, not say jealous, but man, I'm not used to seeing you up here with me. I'm used to seeing you behind me. And, and, and it was tough you know, so I had to evolve those relationships. Some I had to move on from, some I had to challenge and say, look, I'm not going to give up being who I decide I want to be just so you can be comfortable. Okay. So much wisdom you just dropped. One big thing I know something I'm struggling with. I think something a lot of artists struggle with is becoming more okay with disappointing other people than you are with disappointing yourself. Mm. 
And that's such a powerful thing you just spoke to. How did you build your tolerance for that? Uh, I've just always been the type of person that I wrote a song called By Myself. <laughs> uh, I'm not a group kind of guy. I'm a purpose-driven kind of person. Like I have my eyes set on my goal in life. And if you're with me, let's go. You know what I mean? If we're headed to the same place, we can roll together. If not, hey, you go that way, I'll go this way. I've been like that since I was small and a young kid. I just didn't care to hang around crowds for the sake of hanging around crowds. So I always challenge people to take me as I am. You know what I mean? And if you don't, hey, it's cool. We can go our separate ways. That's just, it's been my personality. And I challenge people to be truthful with me. Like I'll be truthful with you. You be truthful with me so that we can determine how much better we can be together. Right. And, <laughs> and unless we deal with each other, honestly, we, we don't get the power of togetherness out of that relationship. You know? Yeah. How though? <laughs> like, you know, you seem so like able to detach from the disappointment you may bring to another person. Like, how are you actually doing it? It's just like a blind focus to the goal. Well, it's truthfulness, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it's truthfulness and it's freedom. I, I say, listen, if a person truly, truly cares about you, they will evolve with you. Mm-hmm. If they don't, then you evolve apart from them. <laughs> okay. That's fair. It's just is what it is because otherwise I now give you control over my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm a free man, right? You cannot control me. You can persuade me. You can make a pitch, but you cannot control me. Right? So when people use their, you know, this man, I feel like this, I feel okay. And you want me to change who I am to change how you feel. Now, who who just took on that burden? I did, right? I just took on that burden. I'm not going to do that, right? And I've done, I have literally done that before where I'm, I took on the burden of so many other people, but now I'm not living, I'm not flying. You know what I mean? So I just decided I won't do that anymore. Yeah, that's solid advice. And so you told this other story in an interview I listened to about how you never really like, counted your voice as an instrument. You didn't look Mm. at yourself as a vocalist. And it was your dad that came to you and said, Hey, you can sing. What are you doing? Why don't you sing? Tell me about that. Oh man. Listen, I was writing so many songs trying to get placements, you know, put in the songwriter world, we got to get those placements, get those checks. (laughs) Uh, And so I would always send my dad, who's my biggest fan growing up. He's just always been by my side and pushing me. I sent him all my songs. He loves my music. And he was like, man, this sounds like an album. Like, why are you giving all these songs away? I'm like, well, that's what we do as songwriters. And he was like, no, go back, listen to it. Like, he's like, nobody can sing your songs like you. He said, they may be more famous. They may have a great voice, but it don't feel the same. So he was listening to the other artists that were releasing my songs and comparing them to the demos. He was like, but it doesn't feel the same. So I just went back and said, well, okay, let me try listening to myself, not as the writer, Mm. but as the, you know, as an artist. And I started to, "Hmm, actually, this is kind of cool. And then it was also trust, you know, because how important my dad has been in my life. I trusted him. I trusted his perspective, but I had to grow year after year after year to a point where I could actually hear myself objectively. 
And honestly, I just started during the pandemic. Yay. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> it, it's been a long journey to where I became confident in the sound of my voice and, and, and knowing that my voice is not the demo guy's voice or the writer's voice, where I'm trying to let somebody hear themselves through me. You know what I mean? And, and that was one of the things that I could do very well as a writer is emulate somebody else's singing style, mm. be it R&B, gospel, jazz, whatever I was trying to get a placement on, I would literally make myself sound exactly like the artist I wanted to sing the song. But that also, I, I lost my own voice in that, or I didn't, I hadn't identified my voice for Alvin Garrett, the artist. But during the quiet time of the pandemic, I was able to hear myself. What was that process like of discovering your voice? Like, what did you literally do besides listening to figure out what your own sound was like? Well, it was it was more so it wasn't even about music. I couldn't try to please anybody. Everybody was running. (laughs) There was nothing to do but live and breathe and reflect during the onset of the pandemic you know, and just watch the world around me. And then just think about all these years of carrying musicians, booking gigs and chasing the dollar. I couldn't do it anymore. So all I found was let me sing to me. You know, I was my biggest audience at that time. And in doing so, I found a freedom. You know, I started waking up 3, 3.30 in the morning before the rest of the world got started. And it was quiet. And I found a peace, you know, um, mm. and I know that's kind of tough for people to say, oh, I found peace during the pandemic, but I did. And I, I found that things I thought were important aren't so important. You know, I found a gratefulness and I really feel like it changed me as a person, which means it changed my voice. It changed how I felt. I relaxed. My tone relaxed. My voice relaxed. You know, I sing in a deeper tone than I did on my previous albums is because I kind of chilled out. (laughs) It sounds like you became yourself. I did. And that's how you found your voice. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying you found a peace in the pandemic. Listen, this has been a torturous time in human history. I think anything good that's happened, we should celebrate. And I love that you found a peace in yourself and that you found an audience of one, because if we can't recognize ourselves, how is anybody else going to recognize us? And that's why I was like harping on that question about how do you deal with disappointing other people? Because truth is like, if we're always concerned with that, we're never really creating anything authentic. And so I think we have to get to the bottom of how can I take away all these other voices around me and just really get to that 3.30 AM feeling and tune into myself. Cause that's how you make something true. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's so powerful. So what was the process like of creating? Cause I know you created a lot of songs during the time of George Floyd and the social justice movements, and just obviously like the treachery of COVID and everything. What was it like creating during that time? Because what, what I love that you've done is you write songs about joy And I think that this is an often overlooked social justice tool. I call it soul, S-O-U-L-C-I-A-L, justice, because it's bringing us together as human beings. And if you have joy in spite of all the pain and trauma going on in the world, to me, that's true progress. So tell me about this and, and kind of where you were coming from with this music. 
Oh, oh you're good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, one of the things I decided to do, certainly, you know, when, when the George Floyd incident happened, and I've always been this type of person, I try to look at the world from a transcendent point of view. When I give this example, that I say, well, two people hold up an apple, right? You hold up an apple on one side of the apple is green. The other side is red. And if all you see is your side of the apple, both of you are right, but both of you are wrong. It's only until you look down on the apple and see that it's both. And so I was looking at the world from down on the apple and saying, hey, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. So how can we bite into this apple, right? How can we all bite into it and get past how it looks on our side of it? And, and you have to transcend with love. That's the only thing that can lift you to the point where you can see the hurt, like you can see the poor black man in the insurrectionist, mm-hmm. right? It's the same core. Yes. It's the same tasting apple. Poverty hurts, whether you're black, white, or anything else. Fear feels the same, regardless of what side of the apple you're on, right? And so even in the music I decided to write, I said, let me write it from this perspective, ask questions that make you think and say, wait a minute, do all Black lives matter, right? To me, right? Why do I say that? You know, ask yourself, you know, why am I afraid of this person that looks different? And so when I sing, I said, let me sing these songs that make people feel and think about this as opposed to typing it out on social media or putting on a bunch of stunts. So music became my voice during the pandemic to say, why are my white neighbors concerned this time? Why are they concerned this time? Maybe it's because they've just experienced fear in a way they've never experienced it before. It's not their fault. They don't experience fear every day like Black people. But the pandemic, when it first started, introduced them to fear. So now they're more empathetic. Let me embrace that and see that as an opportunity to connect as an opportunity to point fingers. And I think for just a little while, we were all human on the same level. And I said, this is a great time in history where maybe we can connect in ways we've never before because we're all afraid of the same thing at the same time. Yeah. You know, and so that's how I was viewing the world. So we're most human in human history, you know, because we can see something common um, in everybody that's different because anybody can die. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, that was to me, that was beautiful in an in a artistic kind of way. It was beautiful to me that people were concerned about folks they never would have seen before because we were all running from the same thing. I haven't heard anyone else put it that way. Yeah. That is just so profound. And it's so true. I mean, I think part of it was that we all had the time to finally slow down and see, because I think before it was very easy to run away from things and there was nowhere to run. You know, you had to look, Right. but this idea of the fear of the common humanity of the fear running through all of us, I haven't heard anyone put it that way. And it's so true and so beautiful. And I love that you're looking at it from this point of view of love, because there's this thing that uh, Brene Brown says, and she says, shame is not a social justice tool. And she's like, listen, if it worked, it'd be great. You know, if it works great, I say, use it all day, but it doesn't work. It's, it's short-sighted people maybe will go away and, you know, 
not say anything for a while, but ultimately they dig deeper. And so when you come at it from this higher perspective of looking at the apple from above, of looking at it from love and how can I connect to you as a human, as a human that wants love and to be seen and who's scared and ultimately just wants to feel like we're bringing value to the world. That's when you make the change. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and, and if you want change, like you just said, you have to embrace your role in it, right? And I have two daughters and I say, they are not aware how privileged they are being my daughters. I did that for them, right? <laughs> They're just born. <laughs> right. So, you know, if, if they were engaging with less privileged, even from the same race, they come from a different side of town. You thank you this, you thank you that. My daughters would be shocked. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just showing up being me. I don't know what you're talking about. They have no perception of their privilege because why? It's just everyday life for them. I created that. But what I teach my daughters is empathy. I make them see their poor neighbors and say, what can you do because you're privileged to give back? Shame does not inspire empathy, has never done it and it never will. So when you want someone to feel your cause, like you just said, shame will not make them care because they don't see it. They don't feel it. They don't have to, you know what I mean? And it's not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault that they don't have to wake up and be concerned about your problems because they have their own, right? Everybody has their own problems. They're relative to who they are and where they are. And until you acknowledge as a black man, I have to acknowledge that my white male neighbor is still having the problem of being a father to two little white girls, period. They may be different than me as a father to my two little black girls, but he's still my neighbor. Right. Right. And we are still fathers of two little girls. So I connect at that point. It's not about being a black dad or a white dad. We're dads. And that's where he starts listening. If I need to share anything about being a black dad, because he won't hear me if I say you got it easier as a white dad. He won't, he won't hear anything I have to say because, wait a minute, you don't know how hard I have to work to take care of my two daughters. I'm a dad. <laughs> and now you create that resentment. You know what I'm saying? And so I always encourage people, certainly through my music and how I live my life, start with giving that love to somebody else and showing them that, hey, I care. I'm open. Let's talk. Let's listen. And it ain't your fault. Like whatever I'm trying to overcome in life, it ain't your fault. And if I want you to help me, let me not shame you and make you feel that it's your fault that I'm in the position I'm in. I was born this way and it's my job to overcome it, <laughs> right? Well, I love that you're finding, like, I think that's just such a power in finding the point of connection first, right. you know, like saying, you know, I'm a father, he's a father, we both have two daughters. That's a point of connection. And then after that, I mean, yeah, it's it's not your fault for whatever you're born into, but like, I do think it is our duty to help each other but it's through those points of connection. It's through empathy. It's through curiosity that that help is actually going to happen. Absolutely. And that's what your music is. Yes. So what did it feel like to put that out into the world? It, it felt good. Uh, it felt really good and empowering for me uh, to finally release music that I didn't care about anybody's opinion. Right. I just didn't care about anybody's opinion about this latest uh, body of work. I wasn't selling it, right? There was no, you know, there's no market to sell it in. You know, there's no gig, there's no promotion. It was just, hey, listen to it. If you like it, great. If you don't, I love it. 
and that's where I believe artistry is born is when you don't care what the world thinks of your music. Now, I'll say this, <laughs> that's not always the smartest business move if you're in the commerce of intellectual property. So I have to take that, you know, I'm, I'm a businessman as well, but I, I'm able now to say that I'm not selling music, music is selling me. So even in this interview, I'm able to talk about the man that my music sold you on, right? You heard something and you said, let me check out this man because it's my voice, it's my representative. My music is now my ambassador. And, and that's the part that I love now. And if you buy into me, you'll listen to the music, you'll buy the music, you'll come to the concert, you'll buy my book when I write one because you bought into me. So I see the music as my ambassador, not I'm trying to get enough streams, <laughs> you know, with, right. where you lose that authenticity of the art and it becomes uh, that rap race. And, oh, how can I get my followers up? Or how can I sell this much? Or how can I get this many streams? Because I'm trying to reach a certain data point as opposed to really reaching the person that uh, really wants to be uh, connected to you. Yeah. And to me, it's like you are the most important and interesting part of your music. Yes. You, your story, your soul that's coming through. That's why I'm going to keep coming back. I might like a song, but I have to feel some sort of connection to you as a person. Mm -hmm. And when you're writing this deeply personal music, I mean, I can only see everything kind of exploding for you because it's just a matter of time till people see this incredible soul and like just want to be all in, you know, yeah. but I do get, you know, cause I also work in media and, you know, an artist. And so I've got this balance too. And it's hard sometimes to like, know where to draw the line as an entrepreneur, where to draw the line as an artist. How do you balance that when you're approaching these projects? Well, it's interesting that you asked that coming into 2020, of course, this has nothing to do with pandemic. I got into a point in my career where I felt what more can I do? How much better can I be? <laughs> I'm being I did it. Anyway, okay. How much better can Hands I? Hands up. I'm awesome. I'm, I'm awesome. But I, <laughs> but I was still falling short. And it was the first year of my career where I had no plans. I intentionally said, I'm making no plans this year. I'm going to focus on generating enough revenue as a consultant with my songwriting class, as a musician. Like I literally, I didn't give up. But I got to a point where I felt like, what more can I actually do? Like, this isn't up to me. Like, it's the, the universe. Somebody got to get involved outside of me because I work too hard to fall this short of what I see in my mind. Maybe I'm doing this wrong. Maybe I should just try something different. Sat down, said, what's my budget? What do I need to make to take care of the family? And I literally said, let me not do music right? Let me do something other than music to take care of my family so that I could relieve the burden of never reaching where I felt I should be based on my talent and my hard work. Come to find out, <laughs> that's when everything blew for me because I took that load off of myself that I'm not coming into this year trying to sell it anyway. <laughs> so, so, 2020, here comes the pandemic. I was already prepared to kind of slow down. And that's when the best music started coming out of me because 
I would turn the mic on literally to speak. You know, when I wrote a song called Something's Different This Time, you know, something's different this time. I was literally singing a song about, okay, people have been shot by cops all the time. What's so different this time? Maybe it's the way, way, you know, and I just started singing. And, And there was this freedom that I found in just, getting to that place where I'm like, Hey, I'm not trying to sell this stuff. Hey, no, who cares? <laughs> I think that's so powerful. And I mean, this is kind of the same thing you hear from people all the time. You know, I stopped looking for someone and then I met my soulmate. Like that happens all the time, you know, whether it's love, whether it's relationship career, you let go. Cause so often we're clutching our fate, like holding on for dear life. Mm. But when you're doing that, there's no space for anything to come into your hands. So you have to open your hands up and allow life to come in. Yeah. But that's hard when, you know, you are a driven person, when you're a type a, when you're somebody who's always thought my hard work will take me to the next level. Yeah. But I think that it's people like that, like us who need to just open up and release the most. And it, this is just such a, a brilliant concept. Yeah. Let go, let God, literally. Yeah. yeah. You know, because you realize, and, and, and this is something that I always say, I say, if you can hold your dreams in your own hands, it's a job. Your dream should be too big for your own hands anyway, right? If you could do it, if you can make it happen, it's just a job. It's not a dream. Right? Yeah. You shouldn't be powerful enough to make your own dreams happen because that means they're too small, right? Like I should be thinking so big that it is absolutely impossible with these little hands. I gotta have some type of supernatural intervention to make what's in my head and heart happen. And and, and that's where I found that freedom. And I said, well, let me use these hands to uplift others, to help others. Let me do what I know I can control and that's give. And that's how my hands opened up, like what you just said. And that was with the songwriting program, working with a reentry program called the Dannon Project, working with young men and women that have been in and out of jail, at-risk population, using my talent in a therapeutic way during the pandemic, which was this. And so in that, I found a freedom, but I was able to allow other things to get in. And so it was that giving that I found to say, hey, all I know I can control is what I give. I can't control what I take. You know, I'm not in control of that. And so I took that burden off of myself. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit more about what you just mentioned, because part of why I started the show is because I believe repressed creativity is cause of a lot of the world's suffering. Mm. And I believe a lot of people that end up doing things that are against their nature, whether it's committing a crime or just making a bad choice or just living a miserable life, wouldn't have done it had they unleashed And had they been true to themselves and followed some sort of creative passion, even if it was just a hobby, what sort of changes did you see in the people that you were teaching songwriting to that you think might've been as a cause of them starting to like step into their creative self? Oh man. Uh, I had one gentleman in my class and he said, he he was like, he was rolling up in the class on Zoom. (laughs) I was like, you just going to roll up in class, right? (laughs) Like rolling up a joint? Yeah. Yeah. Like rolling up. (laughs) (laughs) You're rolling one. I was like, okay, so you just going to roll one in class. Now keep in mind, 
this is a program to get people off of drugs and to get them the help that they need. Oh, wow. But he's rolling up in class. I'm like, he's like, I can't stop, man. I just can't. And then one of the, one of his classmates jumped in like, hold up, hold up. Don't you say that because I was addicted to heroin and I prayed for three months and I asked God to um, relieve me of this dependence on heroin and I haven't been on heroin. Don't you tell me what you can't do. Like, it was this amazing moment that happened in the class. And he was like, yeah, I'm not sure. Next class, he came in, he said, I said, well, I see what you're not doing. He said, man, I'm, I'm like three days clean. Everybody was like, whoa, three days clean. And he was like, yeah, you know, I think I heard what she said, right? Now, this is a songwriting class. And we took from all those experiences and wrote a song. But it was that engagement. That, that environment that was created and that outlet through the songwriting process that allowed them to connect as collaborators of life. And it gave them both an outlet to heal with each other. And then we captured it and turned it into a song. And that's just one example of many examples of how engaging in the songwriting process with this particular class allows people to have some introspect and share, collaborate, but then think of solutions of, of how to deal with those issues that we talk about in class. And, and it's very, very therapeutic. And do you teach other songwriting classes outside of this too? Like how can, how can we first of all support you in that and then also get involved with the other songwriting classes you may be teaching? Well, I'll say anybody wants to support the Dannon Project. That's D-A-N-N-O-N Project. Check out that wonderful organization. Now, I will say, I have done this class exclusively with the Dannon Project for, I'll say thus far for personal reasons. I have not gone to market with this just yet because this is my way of giving back. This has been for me, mm. right? Because it's my way of helping people. And so the, the intrinsic joy that I get from teaching it to this particular population has mattered more to me than trying to just sell it. Now, that's next. I, <laughs> I am getting prepared, you know, soon to start, mark, you know, marketing this class to just songwriters. But I wanted to make sure that I gave myself, you know, exclusively to the young participants at the Bannon Project first before going to market. And it's sort of, like you say, one of those things where it's like, hey, plant this seed first, because I believe that this could be really, really big, but give it first. Right. And so for me, that, that's just something I wanted to do with this. And so I'm looking forward to uh, doing this with just other songwriters who want to learn uh, about my process for writing. And it's very elementary. I call it the musical GPS, the songwriting GPS. <laughs> oh, I like that. I'll sign up. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I, and I really feel like I figured out how to destroy the writer's block. You know what I'm saying? It's, okay. Well, like give us, I don't want you to give away your secrets, but give us a little tip of how you, I don't mind. I don't, when you are blocked, what do you do? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Think about joyriding, right? Let's go joyriding. Let's get in the car and go for a ride. You know, most people approach songwriting like a joyride. You got four wheels. You got a full tank of gas. You can drive all night long. You can, oh, let's go here. But eventually you're going to run out of gas. And you're going to look around and say, where am I? I don't know. I didn't put in the address in the GPS. So you drive until you run out of gas. That's what happens when most people approach their song. They approach it for the joy of it and excitement of it. But there's no direction. There's no purpose. And there's no end game. And so what I say, well, let's get in the same car, but put an address in the GPS. What are you writing about? Who are you writing to? And why? Right? Why are you writing the song? And let that guide how you write it. That's the fun part, the melody, the music. But once you get to the how first and you groove into the music and you don't know what you want to talk about, who you're actually talking to, and why? What's the purpose? Like, what's the purpose of this communication? Then you're going to get lost, right? And once you get lost, you give up. And that's where the block comes in because you're looking for a rhyme as opposed to a actual reason, right? <laughs> and so, Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it really is more like, hey, here's what helps me stay in my lane with the song, you know? And so when I have infinite choices for a line or for or, or melody, I can bring it all in to a, a purposeful, you know, engagement with that music. When you hear my songs, you don't guess what I'm talking about. You feel what I intended you to feel. And I think most writers and artists hate what they call boxes and lanes because I want to be free. But that's where writer's block happens is because you don't give yourself an intended direction. And so it is a methodical approach, but it still allows you, you can drive as fast as you want. Just stay in your lane. <laughs> I mean, I think there's such a freedom that comes with that kind of direction. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I actually felt really blocked. And every week on the show, I give myself and the listeners a word and they could create anything off of that word. And I think having that container to create in actually frees you up. So I, I really abide by that. Yeah. Yes. I love the songwriting GPS. I'm, I'm going to definitely make sure I keep that in mind every time I write from now on. But for you, like, I know you said when you were singing that one song that you, um, why is now different or what was the song? Yeah, something's different this time. Something's different this time. So it sounds like for that, you got the melody, the words, everything all at once. Is that how it usually comes to you? Where, where does this inspiration come from and how does it kind of manifest when you're writing music? Oh, that's how it's been coming lately. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's been coming lately. And to be honest with you, it, it's been amazing to me. And I think it was. I had to get rid of all those blockages, mm -hmm. you know? So for instance, I believe that the music was always in me, but I would try to box it into a business plan, or box it into an audience to where it's like, okay, I want to say this, but I don't want to offend this person, <laughs> you know? And, and, and for a while, I feel like I colored my music as opposed to letting it flow. And in 2015, I wrote a song called By Myself. And it was literally, I was just crushed with all of the rejection from record labels, going to other people saying, help me become an artist. Like I wrote you hit songs. Can you introduce me to this person? And everybody kept saying, no, going back to what you mentioned earlier about that. What, what do you call it? That Im impressionist? Oh, something, imposter something? syndrome. But like they were doing that for you. You believed in yourself, but they didn't want to see you grow because it was inconvenient for them. 
yes. And I wrote a song about that and it's called By Myself. And I said, if you won't stand with me, if you won't go with me, I'll go on by myself. And that was just boiling in me for years yeah. to where it was like, you keep telling me to be something else, but I'm, I'm gonna push past it. You know what I mean? And that that was my most impactful song in my career. And people to this day, they, man, that song stopped me from committing suicide or that song helped me get through a bad divorce because I realized everything I need is in me. But that song had been sitting there for years. And so now I allow it to come out immediately. Like the latest single that I'm promoting called Flowers literally was birthed from a conversation with another person where I said, hey, man, you know, I appreciate you for what you did for me. And you didn't even know the impact of your challenge 20 years ago for me to humble myself. Right. And so he said, man, if you could write a song that captures how you just made me feel with this personal tribute, you'd have a hit. I literally went in and sang the song. I didn't write it. I just sang the experience. And what you hear, Flowers, came out about 85% exactly how you hear it when you listen to the record. I just sang it out and put it on a voice note. So I didn't sit down and say, okay, what's the right melody? What's, what are the lyrics? You planted these flowers in this garden. The garden needs to speak. And I just started singing. You know, smell these flowers. I give you flowers while you yet leave. You know, and that's what I did for him. I gave him a personal tribute while he could hear it, not at his funeral. <laughs> you know, and, and so I just captured that experience into a song. And so now I just close my eyes, tilt my head back and just start singing. And I trust what's coming out of me is what it should be. That sounds, you know, you trusted yourself and it sounds like divine. You know, I really think that a lot of times when we have experiences like that, it's kind of God or spirit coming through us yes. in the form of music. What is your tie between creativity and spirituality? Do you think that they're intrinsically connected? They are one. I think there's a oneness in that. To me, there's just no way uh, to separate the two, you know, because when you can hear or feel something in wherever the university is, the spiritual world, and translate it into something audible, something tangible, that is divine. You know what I mean? That we can use this physical body to translate whatever is happening in our mind and our spirit, just, you know, like that. And there, there are times like, if you were to say, Alvin, what's on your mind right now? Whatever a fraction of that spiritual existence is, it, I could write a book about it. And I don't realize how much is captured in my spirit until I try to translate it into actual words, you know, or a song. And to me, a song is the easiest way for me to tell a lifetime worth of thought that happens in a fraction of a second sometimes, you know, uh, it, it's so spiritual. And, and I think the more you relax and a lot of people use, you know, some help, <laughs> <laughs> rolling one up, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, our, our buddy from before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He need to roll one up to get a little help <laughs> to get to that place. But for me, it was the stillness of the pandemic that got me to that spiritual place where, like I said, waking up in the morning, kids sleep, the world's asleep. It was quiet. Sometimes I just go outside 
I'm like, wow, look how still everything is. But to me, that connected me in a spiritual way to where I found a different creative space. So I do agree with you that uh, there's this connection to creativity in, in, in the spirit world. How have you learned, because this industry is not easy and uh, it, it makes you question a lot, but you seem to have such a solid foundation and platform of self-love. How have you learned to love yourself for who you are, not what you do? Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, that's, that started with my upbringing. I have to give my parents credit for that. Like I say, my dad is, is a pastor, but he's not one of those religious guys. You know, he taught principles of hope, faith love, just those fruits of spirit, um, not, you know, God's going to send you to hell if you drink alcohol, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was this gracefulness and it was this love expressed between my parents with each other mm. um, that allowed me to love myself because they taught me to love myself and the world around me. So I have to say it started with my upbringing, which is oftentimes rare you know, most people experience traumatic family upbringings, and I'm always sensitive to that, that I'm, I'm in, you know, a minority of people who can say they had a healthy uh, upbringing, not one void of challenge, right? Not one void of uh, traumatic experiences, but it was a togetherness in that. If dad was going through a trying time, mom didn't emasculate it. She said, I'm going to pray for him because I can't kick him while he's down. Right. And so it was that type of experience that helped me to become the man that I am today because he taught me how to respect authority, but not hold my head down. So there's a way to look a man in the eyes and respect who he is as an authoritative figure, but you're still a man. Right. So I had to be taught that from a, a beautiful man and a beautiful woman. So now that I know it, I teach it. You know, I live it through my music. But it didn't just come out the clear blue sky. I wish I could say that it did, but it didn't. So I take that as a responsibility uh, for me in my life to say, well, how many people are you going to encounter who did not have that, who did, who were not taught that by people like I was blessed to have in my life? So I, I take that as a, a calling on me in my life to share that love and to teach it, certainly to other young men, you know, how to be a gentle man, but a warrior at the same time, Yes, you know, how to choose not to snap a neck, even though you're powerful enough to snap a neck. Right. <laughs> well, that's true masculinity. And like, that's beautiful. It's owning both of those pieces of you, yes. you know, because I think I really commend you too, because our culture has not taught men how to do that. And I commend your parents for, for teaching that and instilling that in you because there's such a power in that gentleness. It is. That's true strength. Yes. To be gentle when the easiest thing would be to bash someone in the face. That's strength. It really is. It really is. And I, I took karate. My dad was a, a seventh degree black belt. Hey, dad. Yeah. You know, he was a coal miner too, right? So my gosh. You know, bodybuilders, as, as strong as they come, but he would hug you and kiss you, tell mm -hmm. you how much he loved you. And, and, and that's what, that's who I am. You know, I make sure the world around me knows don't take my kindness for weakness, but I choose to use my strength to uplift you. You know what I mean? But that's a choice, right? Strength comes in making the choice. I'm not forced to do that. <laughs> right. Right. And if I have to engage you to protect my family or the people I love, I will. But that's, that doesn't make me a man because I can beat you up or I can hurt you. I, that doesn't make me a man. 
I'm going to walk this lane down the middle and anybody that's drawn to my light, come on in. Right. And speaking of light, I want to wrap out the interview by talking about your new single lightness of love. Yes. Tell me a little bit about it. What drew you to write it? What does it mean to you? Well, it, it, it was, it described the experience uh, that I began to have once I found that gratefulness and that peace during the pandemic with family uh, laying out on, in the driveway with my daughters became my new beach. <laughs> you know, uh, I just heard it in my head, LOL, the lightness of love. Mm. And it became synonymous, honestly, with the presence of God. Because how can you be heavy when you're in the presence of true love? And so it was a way I chose to be. It's like, I don't want the heaviness of the uh, election and the big lie and the the, the red side and the blue side and the Republicans and the Democrats, you pay enough attention, you're going to have a lot of heaviness on you. So for me, I said, this is an existence that I choose. And it's the lightness of love. When you listen to this album, you hear the lyrics of the song, focus on the feeling. It's that lightness of it. It's the attitude of it that I want my listeners to capture to say, man, I just, something about this music, his voice lifts me because that's the space I was in when I wrote this music. And that's the space I'm in now. And I have to fight for it. (laughs) It's not easy. I have to fight to stay light, which means I have to forgive quickly. If I'm offended or if I'm hurt, I have to search for understanding. If I'm confused or lost, it takes active engagement to get back to that place of lightness, you know? And so when people see me smiling, I want them to know, It's a commitment (laughs) to live in the lightness of love. That means I have to uh, engage uh, actively with the world around me so that I don't carry the burden of of racism, of, you know, classism, any ism you can think of. I let that go. When I meet another human being, I'm not going to presume that they are any ism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Starting everybody. That's what I always say. Start everyone at an A plus. Then if they start failing, fine, grade them down. But some people start everyone at an F yeah. and then make them build their way back up. And that's to me, that's so exhausting. I can't live like that. And I love that this song is about that. What if we chose to see the God in everyone in every moment, yeah. you know, Mm-hmm. I just, I love everything about you. I wish that I could talk to you for 15 hours. We could have done an entire podcast about literally any of the, the topics we touched on. You have to come back. Thank you so much for all you shared, Alvin. You're an incredible artist and human. Really appreciate you. And I'll say the same about you. We have to do it again. Get a, 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 another edition of Lauren and Alvin. Let's do it. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my guest, Elvin Garrett. For more info on Elvin, follow him at the Elvin Garrett on Instagram. You can also hear his new music, The Lightness of Love on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your music. Thank you so much to Unleash associate producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Elvin at the Elvin Garrett so he can share too. 
My wish for you this week is you make an agreement with yourself to let go of the part of your life and career you can't control and let the universe make some magic for you. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.